0: Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollack, the editor of Book and Film Globe. We're at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. My voice is a little hoarse and croaky this week. I've been shouting a lot. It's baseball playoffs time, and I'm very busy dealing with all of that. But in the meantime, we're running a website. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and rarely baseball, We have a great show for you this week. We're going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett about the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. We're going to talk about the new Sopranos movie, The Many Saints of Newark, and we're going to talk about the hit Netflix show, Squid Game, which has taken the world by storm. But first, I'm going to rant to you a little bit about books, and our opening song this week is Wrapped Up in Books, a lovely tune by Belle and Sebastian, very bookish type group enjoy the show. So let's lid off this week by talking about the Booker Prize. Every year I undergo an experiment in terror for this site where I read as many of the Booker long list novels as I can. I believe last year I got through seven or eight. Some of them just weren't at the library. I didn't feel like paying for them this year. So far, there, there are 12 long list books. I've read four of them and I kinda liked one and I thought that one was interesting, but but kind of pretty sad. And here's the, here's the thing about the Booker novels. You know, the Booker prizes supposedly goes to the best novel published in the English speaking world, but that's just not true. There's no way that these books are the best novels published. Uh, they're certainly not the most popular novels. They're not novels that, um, they're not good. A lot of them just aren't that good. Really, the Booker awards its prize to the best literary novel of the year, but it's also not true because the best literary novel often doesn't win the Booker. So I don't quite understand what the purpose of this is. If you read all the Booker Prize longlist nominees, you do kind of get a sense of, scope of certain things like the novels the best novels most of them that I read in the booker list are coming out of Africa not like out of Africa but they're from African writers and I find those interesting because they're writing about things that I don't normally get to read about. There's a sort of like a post post post-colonial malaise that seems to be going on in Africa. It's creating a lot of problems, a lot of dysfunction and if you read enough of these books you get a sense of it. So that's kind of interesting but a lot of it is just literary trickery. So for instance, this year I have read four. The first one I read was called Second Place. It's by a writer named Rachel Cusk, who I believe is a British writer, and she's very popular among the literary set because she writes auto fiction, which is contrary to its name, not fiction about cars, but sort of novels where the writer crawls up their own ass and writes about themselves and their concerns. Not like writers haven't been doing that forever, But these books are especially self-concerned. And Second Place is about a writer type who lives in France, rural France. It seems to take place during the pandemic. They don't seem to have a lot of financial problems. She and her husband, who's a very tall, long-haired, handsome, dark-skinned man, who's very good with his hands, uh, have a a house, a guest house on their estate. And they put people with artistic needs there. And this famous painter goes to live there. And everyone gets very neurotic. And there's lots of... uh, Back and forth and self-obsessed wrangling, I really just dis, really disliked this book uh, a lot, and it just I felt like it just was awash in its own privilege. So I can dismiss that. The other book that I'm going to dismiss is uh, by a writer named Francis Spufford or Spooford, S P U F F O R D. It's a very British-sounding name. It's called Light Perpetual, and it's about these kids who were caught up in a terrible bombing during World War II. The um, Nazis sent a rocket into a Woolworths that was full of people It had just recently opened. And so this writer imagines what would have happened if the bombing had never happened and that these kids had lived on to become ordinary British citizens throughout the 20th century. Okay, it's a conceit. Uh, It borrows from a, a genre of what I like to call, you know, British magical World War II realism, Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, and the subsequent book to that, uh, Imagine Similar Things. It could work. Anything could work as a book. But this book, you know, the, the people's lives, you can't really distinguish one person from another. They're all very boring. Okay, regardless, though, this is the part that really got to me. He invokes this changing timeline, a sort of a multiverse what-if timeline, with these words. Come other future. Come mercy not manifest in time. Come knowledge not obtainable in time. Come other chances. Come unsounded deep. Come undivided light. Come dust. Come unsounded deep. What the fuck is this shit? Come on, man. As I say in my piece. All I know is that if I keep reading Booker Prize nominated novels exclusively, I'll be coming dust in no time. Now, to be fair, again, like I said, the two novels of the list that I've read so far that are from Africa are more interesting. There's The Promise by Damon Galgut, who's a South African writer who's had all three of his novels long listed for the booker, so you know he's got to be a good writer. Well, not actually, but he actually is a good writer, and this book traces the South African farm family over forty years of history, both pre and post-apartheid, and it does a good job of re- reflecting the societal changes in that time. And there's there's quite a bit of wit and insight. Uh, I mean, I can't say I liked this book; it was very depressing, but it did. It was well written. It was really well written and very smart. So you got to give it that. The other book was *The Passage* by a writer named Karen Jennings, who's also South African. And she's an interesting case. She's been living in Brazil with a scientist husband during the pandemic, kind of stuck there. She's a not-for-profit type, and she wrote this novel and couldn't find a publisher for it. And finally, this independent British publisher called Holland House picked it up and printed 500 copies, and it got nominated for a Booker Prize. So that's a nice underdog story. The book itself is pretty depressing. It's about this Old lighthouse keeper on a on an unpopulated island, and his life is very harsh and austere. And some guy washes ashore, some refugee or escapee from oppression, and the guy has to share his world with this new arrival. and That's a decent premise for a book, but then there's a lot of flashbacks into the history of this unnamed African country, and I just I kind of got lost in it a little bit. And you know the book is very grim and very depressing, but it's a Booker Prize novel, so of course it's grim and depressing very rarely are there laugh lines in a booker prize novel you know there aren't horses or submarines or there's a lot of action there's no spies or very rarely there are spies so you know you're just getting these sort of grim snapshots into modern history which are the better books or these experimental novels that really aren't experimenting and are just kind of blathering so that's my take I've only read a third of the Booker Prize books. I still have a couple of highly regarded ones to go, so maybe I'll change my tune. But I like my tune, and I don't tend to change it. Stephen Garrett is back yet again, our chief film critic for another installment of... I don't know what we're gonna call this segment. Let's talk about movies with Steven. I I gotta
1: <laughs> got yeah, do better.
0: Gotta do better than that. Um, but but we are gonna talk about movies with Steven. Specifically, we're gonna talk about the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. Now I'm no I time. mean I'm I would say I'm you know, moderately excited to see this, but mostly I'm just happy that this movie is finally in theaters because it's a – because the 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 release of this has been so long delayed by the pandemic, and this is a sign now that the James Bond movie is here that there will no longer be delays from this particular pandemic.
2: Uh,
0: that <laughs> that period of our culture is over. James Bond is back, and Stephen, you seem to um, you have a, a taste for no time to die. You gave it four out of five stars.
3: I did. I don't think it's amazing, but I think it's um, it's quality Bond. I was about to say quality filmmaking. There is an expertise, as I as I say, I think I say, it's mechanically effective and impeccably crafted. Um, you know, this is studio filmmaking, you know, very expensive studio filmmaking at a high level. Um, is it great? Uh, it, is, it is exactly what you think it's gonna be. If you go out uh, to see this movie, you're gonna get uh, some high quality Bond action, but you probably won't remember much from it a week or so later.
0: Car chases, helicopters, skiing, maybe some skiing?
3: Actually, no. There's no like skiing, but there, right. there's, there's some skills. He, he, uh, he sails his own boat to uh, Cuba, which I thought was kind of cool, from Jamaica to Cuba. Um, but there are helicopters. There's some great stunts. Great stunts. I mean, I think that's the, that's the one saving grace of this movie is it's such a solve in a world in a in a multiplex world of uh, superhero movies and CGI bombast, it, this really still seems to try to put in the effort to have practical effects and, uh, you know, people who actually bleed and die actually doing the fighting, you know?
0: Right, and so it's James Bond, but this is the Daniel Craig James Bond, so there's less sex than there was. Y- yes. He <laughs> doesn't have as much sex as Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan did.
3: Certainly not uh, wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am-sword-and-sex the way that uh, the franchise celebrated in the first, you know, I don't know, couple decades of what's now 60 years of movie-making. Yeah, I mean, I think they just figured, you know what, this would be a novel treat. Let's not make him randy. Let's make him feel deeply connected to, you know, the women in his life. He's like a serial monogamist uh, and a committed uh, lover. And, you know... And then he gets bruised when he gets double-crossed or when, you know, shenanigans ensue that make him think that his, the person he loves actually isn't the person he thinks he is, you know? So, which is entertaining to a point. It's just not as fun as Pussy Galore. Uh, but, you know, that was a different audience for a different time.
0: Right. James Bond is is just so sensitive. And this, uh, this is the final installment of the Daniel Craig era of James Bond, which, you know, lasted two years longer than it was supposed to.
3: It did, it did, and you know, five movies. So he's up there with uh, Sean Connery and Roger Moore. He stuck around. He put in the time. Um, You know, it's like the five, the five film club or whatever. They have a smoking jacket, I'm sure, like center at live. So, you know, he's a five timer club. Uh, These movies, I think, what annoyed me about this movie was that I had to go back and do homework and realize that this is the fifth installment of basically a five film story arc where you have repeating characters and repeating repeating plot lines and through lines and subplots and callbacks, Um, in addition to all of the regular generic standard callbacks that you always see, the shaken, not stirred, Bond, James Bond, sometimes it's done in earnest, sometimes it's tongue in cheek, uh, and you still get all those regular flavors of Bond. But with this, yeah, you really do kind of have to be like, wait, what happened in Quantum of Solace? Wait. What happened Inspector? What happened in Casino Royale? Which is a little annoying for the casual moviegoer who just wants to have a good time and see a James Bond movie.
0: Right. The James Bond extended universe is supposed to mean, like, <laughs> oh, that's Money Penny, right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 uh, let me, yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah. Here's
0: the bad guy, and there, there's his cat, and there's the, there's the airplane.
3: Well, let me <laughs> tell you, though, Anna D'Armas, you know, I would not mind an extended universe where Anna D'Armas gets a spinoff movie because she is hilarious. Um, her character is just sexy and spunky and fun, and you almost see her laughing along with with all of the, the antics. And that actually feels like a throwback to what the Bond movies used to be, where they did have a sense of humor about themselves and uh, just enjoyed the the absurd luxury and the spectacle of death around them, you know? Um, almost, you almost want to believe that Daniel Craig is cracking a smile when he's doing scenes with her. Um, she's great, and apparently she's a, her character is a spy that has only had three weeks of training and has just been thrown into her first assignment. So I think that bodes well for the future. It'd be good to see her back.
0: Yeah, because that's what I always liked about the James Bond movies was the wink. You know, the, the yep. ir- there, was a, there was a lot of irony, uh, especially, you know, during the Pierce Brosnan era. era. I mean, the, the, no one no one took this seriously. I mean, those movies aren't good, but that's not the point. The point is that, you know, the, this this is an absurd world, and James Bond is not a character who has any larger meaning, but you know the the um the Daniel Craig movies have a sort of a dark and self serious tone to them that I just I, I while I understand that they're they are probably of a higher quality than say your average Timothy Dalton outing I just didn't really I didn't enjoy them as much.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And what's weird here is that there is this almost an effort to try to make things a little lighter, which of course always backfires. You can't make something lighter with a lot of effort. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, there are a lot of screenwriters, uh, four or five people credited, and Steve Bridges wa- bridge was, was famously brought in to punch up the script, whatever that means. I guess they felt like they wanted a woman to write a women's dialogue. Um, is there a hot priest? And there's no hot priest. Uh, if only, if only. I, I, I feel like she couldn't really do anything more than what generic quips and things. This does seem to make a, a strained attempt to have zingers and one-liners, and they just are groan-worthy. I mean, they're just they're subpar even for Schwarzenegger in the 80s. You know, um, like at one point there's a character named Cyclops, and
0: uh, that's promising that
3: counter. Well, yeah, but then Bond has an encounter with him, and they were like, "What was it like?" And he was like, "It was an eye-opening experience." We're just like, "Really? That's the best you can do?" That's just- I, I,
0: I, <laughs> I wrote that line, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good. Well, like, like, so I'm Cyclops, like, oh, is "Great! That's great!"
3: So, oh, dude, it's so dumb. And Cyclops is called Cyclops because he has like a fake eye. In fact, it's a bionic eye that is Blofeld's bionic eye because Blofeld's in prison, and yet he's pulling the strings. Uh, about what's going on and they don't understand how they can do it but he's got this bionic eye, to see so there's literally a line that I think is hilarious but clearly was not meant to be a a, a laugh line where they're talking about hacking into Blofeld's bionic eye and there's a computer that's trying to do it and then the computer finishes the task and just goes, Blofeld's bionic eye unlocked and I was just like, this is absurd and it should be funnier than it is and you're not playing it for laughs and I miss Austin Powers, you know yeah, so, right. Uh, that
0: right that that strikes me as the kind of thing Austin Powers would uh, would would do or say.
3: <laughs> they they could do to uh to have a little fun with the next cycle or iteration, whatever may come with James Bond. And if it's a woman, then it'll be a woman named James. I don't know. It's you know it's it's a very final ending. Um, and they really uh they throw down the gauntlet in terms of like I don't know how they'll they, they'll really need to do a reboot like or not a reboot but just a uh, a relaunch uh however they do it it's not just going to be like oh remember that blonde guy now it's a brunette guy or something i don't know it'll be well, whatever like, it is it.
0: Stephen it'll be an eye opening experience <laughs> hey. and uh there we go there and that concludes another segment of let's talk about movies with Stephen <laughs> I like it. I think it's good. It's got, it's got a lot. It's got a lot of zip to it. That, that yeah, set. it
3: does. It really yeah. just rolls off the tongue.
0: We're gonna do it. We're gonna do a uh, theme song. So all right. Well, No Time to Die is finally in movie theaters. You can finally see it. It is 163 minutes long. So um, don't uh, you know? Don't make dinner reservations <laughs> yeah. because you're gonna you're it's gonna long. be you're gonna be there for a while. Anyway, thank you, Stephen. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, absolutely. film globe contributor matt hansen joins me now on the show hello matt hello neil yes hello, so matt, matt is a contributing editor at the arts views his writing has appeared in the baffler the guardian the millions the new yorker and more prestigiously than the new yorker on book and film globe and elsewhere matt uh welcome nice to have you so this week uh, matt wrote about the new sopranos extended universe movie from david chase the many saints of Newark. Uh, so Matt, you, you have been a, um, you're a lifelong Sopranos fan, or at least, at least since,
1: Yeah, you know, obviously not a lifelong Sopranos <laughs> existed before. It's my childhood since I was five years old, I've been watching the Sopranos. Yeah. Right, uh, right. No, but I've seen the whole series three times. Um, I, 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 I do this thing where I'll watch Sopranos episodes, five, four or five in a binge, just of those just to analyze them. Yeah. So you're,
0: you're the the target audience for a Sopranos movie. You know this show ended more than a decade ago, but you know you, obviously the, the the character names, the Moltes the Many Saints, as they say, and all, all the you know the Sopranos family tree. These are these are people who have been living in your imagination for a long time.
1: It, it's I think it's an easy sell for someone like me, and there's lots of people like me. How many articles, how many think pieces have been written about how it changed television? Nothing has ever been the same, bringing the anti-hero, you know, mainstream. So, I mean, yeah, and it's – when you watch a show for, what is it, nine seasons that it had, eight seasons, um, you're talking a a pretty big chunk of episodes, and these characters become people that you feel like you know on some level.
0: Yeah. So because of that, um, the expectations were fairly high because it had been a long time since there had been new Sopranos content. And you as well as most of the other reviewers I've read were, were disappointed in what what they produced.
1: Madame Tussauds. I mean, this is this is actors playing little uh kind of uh, you know, Easter egg roles of their of the characters we've already gotten to know. And so it's half of the, the pitch of the film is, hey, oh cool, that's Silvio when he's in his twenties. This is what Uncle Junior looks like back in the day. It's you know, it's it's a little bit, I don't wanna say gimmicky, but that takes away from actually telling me a story you know he does the same gestures that silvio does oh that's so cool and they are fun and it is it is amusing to see that but you can't really base a movie on that i don't think
0: right and you know the godfather saga of course flashed back to young vito corleone right but you know that was in the middle of the saga i mean that the the godfather part two came out two years after the original godfather and it was a very different time Right. in pop culture. Whereas this, you know, there's been a decade wait and I don't think people were exactly clamoring for, for Young Uncle Junior or to finally meet Dickie Moltisanti. Um So, you know, so, so there had to be something more to the content than just that, right? For it to work.
1: Absolutely. A prequel like this needs to stand on its own two feet. And if you haven't seen the source material before it should be able to work on its own. And that's where you get into just, you know, plot. I mean, it's it's plot. Are the characters interesting, compelling? You know, is it shot well? And it's a very reasonably good mafia flick as it is now. Um, and it could have been just as rich as The Sopranos had it been more, I don't know, well thought out in a certain sense. The plot, I mean, and the characterizations. Yeah. Yeah,
0: the way you describe the plot in the piece doesn't, it, you know, it, does, it makes it sound kind of hackneyed in a way, isn't it? Like, the, the, you know, the tragedy of The Sopranos comes so much later, right? Yeah. The, the show. When, when, yeah. When, when and when Tony,
1: Tony finally more or less meets his fate. Right. And, like, Dickie Moltisanti is an interesting character because we've, we've heard about him from the show. So it's an interesting piece of the puzzle. And he's played well. I think Navoli plays him very charismatically. There's a twinkle in his eye. You understand why people like this guy. Al, the, Alessandro the, Nivola, right? Exactly, yeah. And he's really good in the role. It's just, he needs the, it, it hinges on a love story. It hinges on a profound love story. As I mentioned, Amor fu, which is a, a uh, probably saying wrong, but that's what uh, Melfi talks about with Tony in one of the episodes, you know, all consuming love, incredibly operatic passion. And there is charm between him and the, odd stepmother right he's her she's his father's new italian wife from italy so there's this weird kind of really you would kind of be romantically interested in this one um you know it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a blown up love story and it brings to a conclusion which i won't spoil that would be so much more powerful and uh incisive and 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 really talk about kind of a person who's who's more complex than just a charming gangster and it just doesn't i i I didn't buy it i was not taken front for it and so you know if that's half of the crux of the film if you can have half of a crux uh you know i i i I couldn't i couldn't give it the thumbs up half of a crux is just the letter C E R. so um so so um
0: a lot of the press and the previews of, of the show make it seem like it's a, a movie about young Tony Soprano, and the young Tony Soprano is played by Michael Gandolfini, who is James Gandolfini's son, the late James Gandolfini's son, and he's kind of a dead ringer for his dad, both in terms of looks and in terms of performance. But I was surprised to when I was learning about the film that there isn't as much of him. Obviously, he's in it, but there's not as much of him as is advertised, and there's a lot of other other sort of random Goomba stuff going on.
1: Yeah, it, it gets, it can't decide if this is a Tony, com, Tony coming of age story, or if this is the doomed love that influences Sopranos history afterwards, or if it's just about, you know, a bunch of Italian dudes in Jersey, you know, cutting corners and getting a little extra and having stuff falling off of trucks. Is this a mob movie? Is this a love story? Is this a bildungsroman Roman for Tony? And it tries to kind of hit all those marks. And I think it hits most of them. It's just, it can't settle on what movie and what story it's trying to tell.
0: And you know, we're 10 years past The Sopranos. The Sopranos changed, changed the way we look at mobsters and yeah. mobs and criminals on, on screen. And we're 30 years past Goodfellas, which also, right. which really changed the way we look at
1: things. It's a ahead. necessary touchstone for The Sopranos. It's yeah, absolutely.
0: Right, you know, and then we're, God knows how many, 50 years in in arrears with Godfather. So if you want to look at the evolution of mob fiction on on screen, you got The Godfather, you got Goodfellas and Casino, and then you've got um, The Sopranos. And I just feel like this, it strikes me that this doesn't push the ball forward. Exactly.
1: Yeah, it would be, The Sopranos pushed things forward in my mind, partially because it took the mob tropes we're all so used to, and that we all love, right? America loves the gangster. We love the guy who won't wait in line. We love the guy who can beat up somebody he doesn't like. We all dig that kind of, you know, charismatic outlaw. Everybody does, all cultures have versions of it. And so we've seen that story told so many times. Now he brings it to the 21st century. He brings it into the, you know, the anxiety of the modern. I mean, psychoanalysis, am I happy? You know, is this really what I want in life? Am I satisfied? And like, you know, we love getting involved with these characters, as I mentioned earlier. And then if you reveal that these characters are kind of nascent sociopaths and sometimes not even all that nascent, right? You're you're, you're making the viewer check themselves. You're, you're challenging the viewer's sympathy for these people, which is brilliant. Yeah. And that's what The Sopranos does. But, but right. Many Saints wants you to believe that Dickie Moltisanti has this like deep, you know, love for this woman and it goes so horribly wrong, and it really ends up seeing me kind of like a cliche. Again, no spoilers, but I feel like, you know, some reviewers have said, I don't remember where I read it. Some reviewers have said that it's a critique of toxic masculinity. And I think it tries to be, but I think it fails because I can't believe that strongly in Dicky Multisanti's like inner nobility.
0: right. So it really just ends up being kind of a nostalgia piece, which is that was the problem with David Chase's last movie he made not fade away. You know, it's just like ah, this is the music we were listening. You know, it's like it's like kind of like watered down good Goodfellas is where is what it ends up seeming like to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think if for I know that obviously the biggest power players in Hollywood are listening. Obviously, right now they're they're obviously avid yeah. fans of our of our podcast. So I would like to tell Hollywood bigwigs or whoever's running the studios now, HBO or whatever, whatever, um, as a, a customer. Um, i think david chase should get the chance to do the tv show he always wanted to do and never did or i think he did for like three episodes in 1982 and it never panned out or whatever it's called almost grown i think maybe there's a season of it and it's a couple and it's apparently i have not seen it but it's apparently a couple in their 20s kind of growing into adulthood and the music that they listen to and he has this wonderful way with music uh, one of the problems I had with Many Saints of Newark is that he pulled out the song from Astro Weeks, which is a sacred document to uh, me and my fellow Astro Weeks cult members, and tries to stamp it into the uh, romance to kind of just say, oh, bring out the Van Morrison, let's get the tears jerking. Um, but uh, anyway, I think he would be, and a- I think he should get away from the Sopranos world. I think he needs to leave all this alone and do a, a show about two people coming into adulthood together. I think it's a married couple in the city and it's the, told through the music that they listen to, and well, I think that sounds like a sure fascinating thing. So, that,
0: especially after the massive success, uh, critical success of this project, right? I don't know. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the. Maybe this is David Chase's last hurrah. Who knows? But uh, I hope anyway, not. Yeah, I know. But it's it, it's a kind of a strange turn because you know this is another one of those movies that was long. The premiere was long delayed because of COVID, and then it got right. pushed on HBO more than in theaters and so it's just kind of gonna kind of drift off into the nether sphere but uh you know so i'm i don't care particularly much that much but i feel bad for sopranos fans like you and your you and your fellow sopranos heads we've been waiting and now it's over you know the deadwood the deadwood movie they did on hbo was, pr- was pretty decent i thought um but that but that was like an updating of that just kind of was continuing the story i think they, they handled that pr- pretty well but it doesn't sound like this is the same the same deal. Anyway, Matt Hansen, thank you so much for stopping in.
1: We'll, we'll talk to you soon. This has been great, Neil. Thanks so much. All right. Ciao.
0: So I've had about 16 people pitch me articles on Squid Game, which is the hottest show on Netflix in the United States and around the world. Literally every day, I get a Squid Game pitch. Have you written about Squid Game yet? Here's what I think about Squid Game. You know, All they had to do was read the site and see that we already have put up an article about Squid Game. And our Squid Game correspondent was Elijah Pollock, who does have my last name and does happen to be my son, but I didn't choose him for reasons of nepotism, or maybe I did. It doesn't matter. Elijah wrote a great piece about Squid Game this week, he's here. He's sitting right next to me. He's home from college for the weekend. Hello, Elijah. Welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast.
4: Hi, I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, so you and I had our own podcast called Extra Credit for a few years. It used to run on Audible. It's no more. but this is So this is the grand return that our many fans have been waiting for.
4: I know. I'm sure everyone's just thrilled to have the dynamic duo back together. Yeah,
0: for sure. So uh, you, you reviewed Squid Game this week. You hadn't written for us in a while. So tell us a little bit about Squid Game. What What is this show and why has it captured the world's imagination so thoroughly?
4: So when I started *Squid Game* and when I first heard about it, I uh, saw a lot of similarities to *The Hunger Games* in the in the fact that it's about rich people um, making less fortunate people than them play games to the death for money and fame.
0: Right, and this is a but this isn't the *Hunger Games*. This is a South Korean show, right? So so what are the differences and similarities?
4: Well, there's obviously the impact of South Korean culture on the show, and you get to see a lot of that, especially at the start of the show when they're introducing the the characters and the plot. And then you get to the the game at first and you're kind of confused on what's going on. I mean, at this point, everyone's had the show spoiled for them or has seen it, so everyone knows what the whole point of the game is, is that it's a bunch of poor people pretty much fighting to the death for money in children's games, which is an interesting premise for a show and is literally... Drawn the wor- entire world towards the show, right?
0: No, so you know, in the Hunger Games, these are teenagers who are sort of fighting for public amusement and to keep the public distracted. Mm-hmm. The Squid Game, these are adults, most of whom have severe credit card debt, and mm-hmm. so it's not really a show about it's not a it's not a young adult show. It's a show for adults. So I'm interested. Obviously, you were drawn to it because of the um, intensity of the plot and the emotions, and uh, you know, and the. Also, the um, suspense about who's going to win, who's going to live, who's going to die. But I'm curious, you know, as a teenager who hasn't had to deal yet entirely with life's uh, financial shocks, how you responded to that? Do you think this is a critique of capitalism? Do you think uh, do, you, do you think it's a critique of the rat race? How, how do you uh, how do you read it?
4: It definitely is a critique of capitalism in some ways because. You see these people doing literally being willing to do anything they possibly can to get the money, which includes taking another person's life. So it's pretty much showing, I think it's more of a, it talks more on human nature and how it, money can like really change people. And that's what the show is trying to say is that when there is this certain amount of, because at the start of the show, all of the characters are like, Oh no, we can't we can't be in this game. This is cruel and wrong. And then when they really start to see how much money that they can be making and how it can actually change their life, it makes them throw all their morals aside and essentially become these become like animalistic.
0: Right. So, I don't know, maybe you could relate to that in some ways. I mean, does it, you know, does this reflect how people your age think about money, that it is this sort of brutal, you know, zero-sum game that not everyone can win?
4: I think the characters in the show are a good representation of a lot of people in today's society because a lot of people just go out and spend all their money without really thinking about it. And the people in this show did the same and that's why they're all in debt. So in some ways, I think the average person is able to relate to the characters in the show because they see like
0: they see themselves they in see themselves
4: in, yeah. in some parts of the characters which i mean is slightly terrifying and at the same time very interesting
0: now the games are super cool in the show right they're like representations of children's games the most famous one we've seen is red light green light mm-hmm. but there's other sort of classic children's games represented as well
4: yeah like tug of war and some korean games that you, ha- you wouldn't have heard of if you'd never seen the show before.
0: Right, but they they make it pretty clear what the rules are. Oh, yeah, the they game.
4: explain it all very well.
0: Yeah, so it kind of gives these like innocent like summer camp games this really super creepy overtone.
4: I think the game Red Light, Green Light is going to be um, talked about for... A, it, it has been talked about on social media more than I've ever seen a children's game talked about before. Everywhere I look... Whether it be Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, it doesn't matter what the platform is. All I see is Squid Game. That's all anyone talks about. And I mean, I think it's a cool show with a cool premise, but I think people are getting a little too too into it for just a nine-episode TV show.
0: Yeah, it is. But sometimes these pop-cultural phenomenons happen and you can't really control. Obviously, it tapped into a nerve because like... Maybe there are limited global resources, and maybe we are killing one another over them. I don't know. Maybe we maybe we're not. I, I, but obviously it tapped into something.
4: I mean, I've been seeing people online now, and they're saying that it's Squid Game is actually real in real life, and that the show was created by some was created to warn the people of the elites um, want to have them all fight to the death, which I think is absurd. But
0: as your father, I can tell you, I think you're spending too much time on the internet, but. Uh, my my real question to you here, Elijah, is: Would you win the Squid Game? No. You wouldn't. You would lose.
4: I mean, I'm going to be honest. I would lose. I'm.
0: Why is that? Because you're not ruthless enough, or because you're clumsy?
4: It's because I'm clumsy.
0: Right. Not. I, not, not I, I'm
4: like I'm not very well coordinated. I'm not very good with like my hands and putting putting things together. There's at one point they have to do like a kind of like puzzle like game without giving away exactly what they have to do right
0: so it's not for moral reasons that you wouldn't win no it's
4: not for moral i mean if i was in there and i had to be there i mean i i do what i had to do i wouldn't be ruthless i wouldn't go i wouldn't be slitting people's throats in their sleep or whatever i wouldn't be that that ruthless but i would definitely i think i could win if it was all somewhat like athletic based maybe not and like you know be mentally based but when it comes to puzzles when it comes to having to do stuff with my hands having to be coordinated that that might be where i um
0: lose the squid game yes yes well let's try not to enter you in any contest like that and in the meantime keep on writing for us it's good to see you again stop by the studio anytime
4: i will make sure to do that all right later elijah
0: Alright, thanks Elijah. Nice to have you home. Nice to have you talking about Squid Game. Thanks also to Stephen Garrett and Matt Hansen for joining me on this week's edition of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I am Neil Pollack, the Editor-in-Chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and films and streaming TV and sometimes some other stuff too. We're closing this week with the Backstreet Boys. They're not playing Squid Game but they're playing games with your heart or someone's playing games with their heart. I don't know. Quit playing games with my heart. It's a song with games in it. Give me a break. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading the site. We'll talk to you soon.
2: I always value books, and films, and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. BookandFilmGlobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds, it's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com.